The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And tonight we are gonna talk about a bunch of recent Curbsiders episodes on diarrhea, dementia, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, and an episode where we talk a whole bunch about musculoskeletal, shoulder, knee, hip, elbow. Paul, uh, these things go together, right? Yeah, no, it, it, it seemed a natural fit. I think um, especially diarrhea and obesity hypoventilation syndrome. Like I think there are two <laughs> things I think about constantly. So this will be, I think, really accessible to our audience. So this is most certainly what we're calling Tales from the Curbside. This is where we rapidly review some of the top pearls from recent episodes. And to remind the audience, these episodes are not available for CME specifically, but uh, the episodes that we're discussing, most of those were CME activities. Actually, I think in this case, all of them were CME activities. So you can go back to the individual episodes, which are linked in the show notes. And of course, our CME is provided by VCU Health Continuing Education. And you can check that out for free at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. So with that, Paul, let's get on to our first episode. This was number 267. This was chronic diarrhea. Uh, we, we called this diarrhea disemboweled. And sure our guest was the great Dr. Iris Wang. And it was produced with graphics as well by Dr. Elena Gibson. And Paul, I'm going to ask you to start with what was one of your favorite pearls from this part two of our diarrhea disemboweled? There were, yeah, this was... Um... For context for our audience, this was actually an episode that we separated into two different episodes. This was a two-hour marathon discussion about diarrhea uh, with our excellent guest. So in terms of the chronic discussion, she made a couple of points that really stuck with me. Uh, the one that I really liked is actually, so if, a point that she made, and I can't remember if we talked about this last time, is that all chronic diarrhea starts somewhere, meaning that when you're yeah. working up acute diarrhea, the chronic causes can also do it. So I know we're in the chronic episode, but I thought that was a really fantastic point. Um, and then we, we talked a little bit about this concept of functional diarrhea, which we're not allowed to call that anymore. So now it's, it's now disorders of the gut-brain access, um, which I think, what do you say? Was it DOTGIBA? I can't remember what acronym we came up for. It was something good. <laughs> I think that's, uh, sure, Paul. Sure. I yeah, don't think I, anyone's going to fact check us no. on that one. <laughs> I think people are going to love it. But the, the point that she made with whatever it is that we're calling it is that this is a diagnosis of exclusion like so many things, that if you're thinking about it in the correct patient populations, make sure that you're ruling out celiac disease, make sure you're ruling out inflammatory bowel disease, if that's a consideration. If you're worried about bowel absorption uh, or possibly microscopic colitis as a cause, then you have to start with endoscopy before we can actually call it uh, this uh, disorder of the gut-brain axis. And then another sort of smaller pearl I like, but one that I just enjoy because I thought it was fun to talk about is, you know, I, I oftentimes when we're discussing some, a patient with chronic diarrhea, we talk about the quality of the stool and Floating seems to get a lot, a lot of traction, like whether or not the stool. It's got to be important, Paul. Like I that, like... I think that means you're dying if you have floating stools. <laughs> tell, tell, prove me wrong, Paul. I, I mean, we're all dying, so I think that's probably an accurate <laughs> statement. But basically, our point is, is that what makes stool float is air, not fat. So that if you're thinking about someone who has a, mal a fat malabsorption problem, floating stool is not the best indicator of it. So the best questions to ask 
are is there like an oil slick or actual oil droplets on top of the water even after the patient flushes or if the stools are very greasy and difficult to flush those are much better historical questions looking for fat malabsorption than worrying about floating stool or not i just i, I feel like it's reported so often when we ask about it when we're talking to our trainees and probably the floating part honestly who cares and um, this Way back when we talked with Dr. Finucan uh, about, uh, you know, Voltaire and UTIs, Paul, he mentioned this. This was part of his medical ignorome. He he said, we've actually known this for like 20 years, that that floating stools are because of gas. And it's still taught in medical school that like, you know, floating stools means that there's, yeah, a, as you just said. So it's it's crazy. It's craziness, Paul. But And as much as we can do to avoid the phone calls to come and examine someone's stool on the inpatient side, like I think the better <laughs> off we'll be. So if we can just knock that myth out, I feel great about it. I fully support that. So we, we did try to go through an algorithm for chronic diarrhea. So typically that's listed as, you know, considered diarrhea that lasts more than four weeks. And what I thought was the most easy way to tell an osmotic from a non-osmotic, which are the two main buckets that we're using for diarrhea. And Paul, I just realized how gross this yep. sounds. Yep, as that we're, was... Yeah, <laughs> I, I heard it too. Uh, so the osmotic diarrhea, if the patient is fasting and the diarrhea goes away, you should strongly consider that that's an osmotic diarrhea. So something that they're eating that is giving them the diarrhea, for instance, lactose or fructose you know, some sort of carbohydrate malabsorption or osmotic diarrhea is often commonly caused by medications or laxatives. And if you really want to get like scientific about it, you can check a stool gap. Paul, how often are you sending stool osmotic gaps? As as a primary outpatient doctor, as little as humanly possible, to be honest yeah, with you. Same, same. So uh, usually, usually I will try to get that history, but I'm not, I will be honest, I'm not sending a lot of stool studies. On the other side of things, like let's say you send the stool and the osmotic gap is not elevated, and usually the cutoff is is like 50 or 75, somewhere in that range. So less, less than 75 on the osmotic gap or less than 50 tends to be a non-osmotic diarrhea. And this could be anything from celiac to different types of malabsorption or infections. And Paul, what I think I now have a better handle on is what to do about how much bowel someone's resected and and what the cutoff is that matters. And she gave us the cutoff of 100. And she said that if someone has less than 100 centimeters of bowel resected, and we're talking about small bowel here, that they can have bile acid malabsorption. And actually, the liver can overproduce bile acids, and those bile acids can make it to the colon, and they can cause colonic irritation. So those are people that actually would get better if you gave them bile acid binders like cholestyramine. If someone has more than 100 centimeters of small bowel resected, they're more likely to actually have a fat malabsorption. And actually, they already have a net loss of bile acids. So if you give them a bile acid binder, they already are at a loss for bile acids, and you're going to make it worse. Right. So that is a mistake. Scatteria. Yeah. And that is a mistake that I would be, you know, that I, I just did not know. And so I think having the, you know, that cutoff in mind, more than hundred centimeters, stay away from the, the binders like cholestyramine and uh, your patients will like you more, which, which we care about, Paul. Sure. I, I will say that happily, because I'm a coward, someone who already has altered uh, intestinal anatomy with chronic diarrhea is probably going to be seeing a gastroenterologist if I'm taking care of them. So that should yes. provide my patients with some reassurance. Yeah. And and we on the episode we talk about, you know, checking 
fecal elastase and checking like a 24, 48-hour collection uh, 48 to, to, hours. Me- to measure bile acids. And, you know, that just, Paul, you know, I, I'm not going to ask a patient to, to collect their stool for 48 hours. I'm going to send them to Dr. Wang. Iris, she can handle that. Uh, but <laughs> and, and she's happy to. She told us. So she loved it. The the other stuff we talked about with with uh, diarrhea is just you know don't miss out on the easy stuff. Ask them if they've had pan, uh, pancreatic resection or surgery. Ask them if they've had their gallbladder out. Do they have ileal Crohn's disease and they're malabsorbing for that reason? And then just like culprit medications. I mean, probably metformin is the biggest one that I that I see in my practice. Over and over, yeah. And then that's it. I mean, that episode. Uh, you know what, Paul? Actually, I can't leave this without no, talking about No, you have FODMAP. to talk about the FODMAPs. I know uh, Dr. Wang has strong opinions about them. You love them. So tell, yeah. tell us your take on them. So with with the FODMAP diet, it's it can be used for irritable bowel syndrome, which is a, Paul, it's a degiba, a, a disorder of the gut-brain axis. Perfect. I, Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's You've made an acronym that's impossible to say. But yeah, uh, the FODMAP diet, it's very restrictive. And actually, Stanford has a great handout that I usually print and give to patients. And I say like, okay, these are low FODMAP foods. These are high FODMAP foods. And it has them grouped into food groups too. So I could say, you know, what you do is for six weeks, you try to eat low FODMAP foods and then see if your diarrhea gets better. And if it does, you slowly start to try to reintroduce the high FODMAP foods. But it's pretty challenging to do. And it's best done with the guidance of a nutritionist. And further, you got to make sure the patient knows that this is not a permanent diet. Like you, they're, they're not going to lose weight on this. It's it's really just meant to try to identify trigger foods so that they can eat. Actually, overall, they might end up being able to eat more things. But initially, it's very restrictive. Yeah, you feel like you're getting away with something because it's a non-medicine inter- intervention. But on the other hand, it is it's a long list and it's a lot of food and it's, it's complicated in terms of, and, and it's putting a lot of burden on the patient as to sort of yeah. managing their own diet. So I, I think her point about working with nutritionists is really is well taken if this is something you're going to pursue. So it's not an easy fix. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like there, there really are any. Oh, no. it's maybe hypnosis. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have seen it work though for, for patients. Um, I, I had a patient who was an engineer, uh, very like systematic in in their thinking and they worked with a nutritionist and they actually like love this thing and they were just like oh, i think right. that's part of what got me so excited it was like what probably one of the first patients i ever used this with and they really like did a great job with it and had a good result so check that out people so matt i i think if anyone knows anything about me it's that i never use one word uh if i can use five words instead like i just <laughs> i tend being concise is not my my forte. I just I tend to I, I like flowery speech. I talk too much, and I also tend to write too much. And so, one of the things I like about Grammarly is it gives me great suggestions to make my my writing more concise. And I, I think it's been helpful for you as well. I understand that you have um, some issues with commas, if I remember correctly. Paul, my wife has been an editor in a former life, and she tells me that I don't understand commas. And I think she's probably <laughs> right because when I, when I started using Grammarly, it just is telling me to to add or remove commas in all these places that don't make sense to me. But <laughs> I'm starting to pick up the patterns a little bit, so it's actually teaching me to be uh, better with my grammar. And I've been using Grammarly a lot because, as you know, we have a website, we put out weekly content, show notes, and I use Grammarly to help make sure that we have clarity in the way that we're writing our show notes. Obviously, it helps me with my commas. And you can actually set like what kind of tone you're going for. So 
obviously playful when we're <laughs> when we're doing our show notes. So, I don't like that. Yeah, you don't like that. Uh, it also makes you sound smarter because it helps you with your word choices. If you keep using if you keep using the same adjectives, it it can, can nudge you into other suggestions. And another great thing is it'll highlight some of the sentences and, and say you might want to consider reworking this sentence because it may be confusing to people. So. It's very useful, and it's a product that really saves me time when I'm when I'm putting together uh, and editing all these show notes that we put out. Right, and it works across platforms too. So it's not just for for writing in Word. It can also work in your email programs, whether it's Outlook or Gmail. It can help you on Twitter or LinkedIn. It can even help you um, just in, in your actual web browser itself. So do more than just spell check. Say what you really mean with Grammarly Premium. Get twenty percent off Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com/curb. That's 20% off at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash curb. Paul, let's go on to uh, what, what just one of my, one of the most memorable episodes for me recently. Oh, uh, excellent. Nicely done. And this was Dementia Made Simple, number 268, with Dr. Joshua Wee, produced with graphics also by Dr. Emmy Okamoto. Paul, uh, give me, give me. What was your favorite pearl from this one? I I could listen to Josh Wee talk for four and a half hours. I, I he should probably have his own podcast. He's amazing. I, I the thing I, I like about him, other than being sort of one of the smartest people I know, is his overall really humanistic approach that I think actually just equals good medicine, which is often true. But he talks about his the the triad approach uh, or the triad visit when he's actually making initial discussions about the diagnosis. So. And by that, he means it's it's he, the physician, a caregiver, and the patient in the room having a group discussion about what's going on, what their concerns are. And he makes a lot of terrific points about how often you're either tempted to ignore the patient and talk exclusively to the caregiver or talk only to the patient, ignore the caregiver. But in any case, someone's feelings get hurt oftentimes if you're not careful and thoughtful about devoting your attention to both, because both have important history and concerns to bring into it. And then he also, we talked a little bit earlier, he has ground rules that he sets up with this visit, which I, I think are funny and also very smart because there's this underlying power differential. He sets the rules that the patient can interrupt at any time whenever they want to, and the caregiver is not allowed to interrupt at any time uh, during the visit. So it's sort of to hopefully level the playing field and then also make the patient feel like they're in charge of the visit, which is important when you're having these conversations about uh, what can sometimes be scary diagnoses. Yeah. And along along those lines. Yeah. So actually, why don't you, he talked about oh. the emotional weight of the diagnosis. Why don't you, I, I think we talked a little bit about that, but what what points did you take away from his initial discussion with patients? Like what, what tips did you like? Well, no, I was going to prompt you for your, for what I know is the next excellent point that you want to make is like, Paul, should we, can we say the word dementia to our patients in the triad visit? It's, it's, he's so good. So he makes the point. Yes. You say the word dementia and you name the thing and you also name it without the expectation of shame or fear. And he uses those two words explicitly. Like you just, you say it very matter of factly because this is something that we can deal with and that we have tools to help with. Um, and if you address the emotion in the room, in addition to the diagnosis and sort of the medical issues, you're, you're doing the patient and the caregiver a world of good. So he, he talks about his approach in terms of just naming it and talking about it very matter of factly and from a place of, and here's how, here's how we can help you with it, which I think is, is very, very powerful. And it's just, it's nice to actually hear that um, from someone who knows what they're doing. The other really useful thing that, that I was excited about from this was when he talked about quick subtyping of dementia. And he, he told us that, you know, this, this system that he has is good enough to get him in the ballpark most of the time for a non-neurologist. And Paul, I'm just happy to be in the parking lot of the, of the ballpark. Uh, 
So he talked about this fast or slow. And uh, so if the patient is walking fast, talking fast, and, and, and really when he says fast here, he means normal speed. I think he means fast compared to the slow people. Someone who's still talking and, and moving normal speed, that's probably going to be either an Alzheimer's dementia or a frontotemporal dementia. And the way to tell the difference between those is a frontotemporal dementia it really doesn't occur in older adults. So if you're talking about someone that's over 65 years old, it, it's probably not a new frontotemporal dementia. And you, it's probably an Alzheimer's dementia if it's a fast dementia is what we're going to call that. For the younger people, it's, it's a toss-up between is this frontotemporal dementia or Alzheimer's dementia, and you might be able to tell it by some of the other symptoms and behaviors that are going on. Now, on the other hand, if someone has a slow dementia where they, they walk slow, they talk slow, they move slow, you got to think, is this more of a Parkinson's-type features, or does this person like have the classic vascular risk factors uh, CKD, obesity, heart disease, high blood pressure, di- uh, you know, diabetes. If so, then you know, think about vascular dementia. But if not, think about this is one of the Parkinson's syndromes. And and Paul, do you remember like the how he talked about those, which I thought was really smart. I think he actually gave us like a story about it. Well, yeah. So he makes the point that Parkinson's dementia does not declare itself that way. That's not the first manifestation of Parkinson's disease. Uh, usually. If it is a Parkinson's dementia and not a Lewy body dementia, usually there, there's been the movement disorders and some a lot all the other symptoms that you think about with Parkinson's that have showed up first have been present for years before actually the dementia part kicks in. However, if one of the early features of this is Parkinsonian, but also in the setting with dementia at the same time, if the dementia presents early in the course, then that should make you think more like a, a Lewy body type dementia, if I understand his thinking correctly. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what he said. So which was mind blowing. And, and you know, yeah, and and I think it makes sense. So you have you know, ways now to think about who might have a vascular dementia, who might have an Alzheimer's, and and then if there's features of like Parkinsonism, then you can you can further subtype it and go down that pathway. But this was a I thought just like a really elegant and simple way because dementia just seems so complicated and intimidating to approach. And he also had a very similar way to simplify the treatment. Paul, we, I mean, we talked about this. Do you use a lot of Dinepazil, Mamantine? Are you throwing those meds at patients? I don't, honestly, I don't think I've ever prescribed them, if I'm being honest. Um, just because I know, even anecdotally, they've not had a reputation for huge efficacy. Like, I think I know that they, in the studies, they show maybe some, um, they show evidence of, of benefit, but they, it's, it's always on these scales and not actual, like, clinical benefit or anything that the patient's going to feel substantially. Um, yeah. So it's not something I prescribe a whole ton of, but I don't think I was aware of or, or at least it's thoughtful of the potential harms of, of prescribing them, which I think uh, Josh talked about a little bit at length. I don't know. What, what did you Right. Think? Yeah. So these medications, statistically, we can detect a benefit on scales, but the benefit is small and whether or not it's clinically meaningful is definitely in question. So Josh said, these meds are not like, they are icing on the cake. They are, they should not be, the they're not going to provide the majority of benefit for what you're doing to the patient because and and these meds, he said, are not worth tolerating side effects. They have, uh, Dinepazil specifically has a lot of GI side effects. Some of these patients already aren't eating well, and this can further potentially contribute to weight loss and poor intake. And then on top of that, Dinepazil can cause bradycardia. And we keep going back to this, but our great friend Eric Wadera told a story of a patient who had a pacemaker put in because of bradycardia, and it was actually it was it was this medication that was probably causing it. So 
definitely look out for that. And and these medications should not be like the backbone of your treatment. The backbone of your treatment is tell the patient that you want them to live a rich and full life. And I believe that's a quote from Dr. Wee on this episode. And he said, I tell the patients, I want you to socialize. I want you to have fun. And we we talked a little bit about dementia um, prevention and prevention of dementia is all the common sense things that we tell people that no one really does is like eat right, you know, exercise, live an active lifestyle. You got to take your medicine to control your blood pressure. If you have high blood pressure and control all your vascular risk factors and whatnot. So there's a lot of other things you can do for dementia, making sure the patient's safe, that the caregiver is supported. Those are more important than these, these medications, which to say it one more time, are not worth tolerating side effects. Paul, I wanted to check in with you. How are you doing with the reading list? Every every time we get picks of the week, uh, book recommendations from the guests, you keep mentioning that the list is just piling up. Have you figured out a solution? And does it have anything to do with a sponsor of this show? Uh, well, you know, coincidentally, it it does. I think the solution is right in front of us, and we're going to talk about it. You know, it's I I like the feel of a paper book, but unfortunately, by the end of the day, I'm probably too exhausted to do much reading, and I tend to fall asleep literally with a book on my face. And so. We're happy to talk to you about Audible because they allow you to listen to audiobooks at your convenience, whether you're driving, whether you're exercising. You don't have to necessarily be focused exclusively on the book, which has been a problem for me since most of my day is filled up with other things. Matt, you've been using Audible a lot. You've been using it for years, right? I have. I've been listening to audiobooks for probably the past six years because uh, when I had a long commute, and I I just started listening to the audiobooks and I, the first ones I got into, which are really great, people should definitely check out on Audible. Anything by Malcolm Gladwell, I, if you wonder where his podcast came from, which I'm sure is also on Audible, uh, the podcast came out of his audiobooks, which were so fantastic that people were probably telling him he had to do a podcast. But I would recommend Blink or Outliers. I also uh, listened to some of the books by the Heath Brothers. There's a book called Switch. There's a book called Made to Stick. These were really great audiobooks, and I just love Paul. I love crushing nonfiction books on audio. <laughs> uh, it's just it's a great way to go through them. And as you said, like I don't always have the time to be reading them when I'm at home. You know, with multiple children climbing on me, uh, I'm reading a lot of graphic novels with them at home. So uh, you know, Audible is a great solution for that. They are the leading provider of spoken word entertainment, and it's all in one place. As a member, you get a credit every month that's good for any title in their entire premium selection, and they stay in your Audible library forever. Also, they have thousands and thousands of audiobooks, original entertainment, they have guided fitness and meditation, their sleep tracks for better rests, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of some of your favorite shows and exclusive Audible originals that you won't find anywhere else. Yeah, it's funny. They have so much content that if you listen to every title on Audible, you'd be listening for more than three centuries. Um, so with an Audible, I will that, buy that. Paul. That that sounds <laughs> believable and, and lightly exhausting. With an Audible membership, you can download titles and listen offline anytime, anywhere. New members can always try Audible for thirty days on us. Visit audible.com/curb or text curb to five hundred five hundred. That's audible.com slash curb or text curb, C-U-R-B, to 500-500. Well, Paul, you know, this episode was great. The next one that I want to tell you about is number 269, 
Obesity Hypoventilation Syndrome with Dr. Anisa Das. This was produced and also with graphics by Dr. Cyrus Askin. And Paul, this diagnosis of obesity hypoventilation syndrome, you know, on air, I admitted that I thought it was like the same thing as central sleep apnea, which is totally wrong. So clearly (laughs) I didn't understand it. Even after prepping for the episode, I was still like a little wishy-washy about like, what's the pathophysiology of this, which I'll talk about. But what what was your favorite uh, pearl from this episode? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm with you. It's, it's a nebulous diagnosis. So it was to me before having this conversation with Dr. Das, just because it's, Maybe if someone was obese and had um, shortness of breath, I'm like, maybe there's OHS, then I would hope no one would question me on it. So I, <laughs> we, we got much more into it in this episode. But some of the points that she made, I liked a lot. Um, just to, you're going to talk about sort of the overlap between obstructive sleep apnea and OHS. But one of the points that she made is if you're doing polysomnography to evaluate someone for obstructive sleep apnea, the higher the apnea hypopnea index, the more likely they are to have concomitant OHS, which I thought was a neat little pearl, just something to kind of make you start thinking about it, because I think suspicions probably have to fight. And then to make the diagnosis, you need to have obesity, you need to have hypoventilation, this should not be mind-blowing, but that will manifest as hypercapnia, and then also it's a diagnosis of exclusion. And we talk a little bit about, there probably realistically are some overlap, like I think we all have patients who have a little bit of COPD, a little bit of OHS, so it's not going to be that clean all the time, but it's got to be the predominant, I think, um, underlying physiology to get the label for it. And then, so why don't, why don't I let you speak to the pathophys? Because I think that's initially where I was getting tripped up a little bit. So how, like, how does this actually work? Yeah. And th- so there's three, three main things that are believed to factor into it that Dr. Das quoted. So it's, it's a triad. There's leptin resistance. And I'm not that familiar with leptin, Paul. You know, I've heard of it, but apparently... Leptin is important in uh, respiratory stimulation or, or like your ventilatory drive, and there's an element of resistance to it in these patients so that they have less of a drive. Additionally, they're carrying extra weight on the thorax, and there's a bit of like chest wall restriction that also contributes to this, um, you know, hypoventilation. And then finally, most of the patients with this condition have an obstructive sleep apnea component. And I think she told us it was something like 70 to 90% of the patients have a a sleep apnea component, which makes sense when you talk about the treatment. The main treatment is CPAP for this condition, in addition to weight loss, of course, which we'll talk about. But so just thinking about it that way, like there's a decreased drive, there's extra weight on the chest wall, and then there's this obstructive component of the actual airway and and Paul, that's why we talked about the the instrument, uh, the didgeridoo, which, as we know, Paul, it it helps you lose tongue fat and uh, actually has helped with sleep apnea. Sure, yeah, I recommend. I prescribe it for all of my patients now, <laughs> and they love me for it. <laughs> if Stuart were here, he'd be telling people how many are left on Amazon <laughs> and and uh, what what price they're they're up for. But yeah, I I think I think that this uh this brings up the point, Paul. How much weight does someone need to lose to uh, have it have it? What do the guidelines say? I yeah, I don't want to say a bananas amount because, but it's I think, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but I think the number is like twenty five to thirty percent weight loss is the recommendation, which is yeah. just we've talked about before. You know, if a patient has ten percent weight loss, like we're doing victory laps around the office together, and I think rightfully so. So it's that's a it's a number. Realistically, you may need a lot of help to achieve, including uh, bariatric surgery, which I, I think Dr. Das says she makes a fair number of referrals herself and is often the initiator of conversations about weight loss with her patients, which I right. appreciated. Yeah. And we we have a, a forthcoming bariatric surgery episode. I can't remember if it will have aired or it'll either be a week before or uh, just, just right after this episode. Like after. 
But this is a topic that we probably, as primary care, need to get a little bit more familiar with like who needs to be referred for bariatric surgery because the number, it's it's super grim, Paul. When you look at the numbers for weight loss, I mean, it's really hard to lose weight. And if, if you're talking that someone might need 25 to 30% weight loss to overcome an obesity hypoventilation syndrome, that's that's a tremendous amount. The medication therapies will often yeah. not be sufficient probably. Yeah, I mean, we, we recently talked about semaglutide with a 15% weight loss, and we thought that was incredible. Huge. Yeah. So t- it's tough to do. But anyway, that definitely talk to your patients about weight loss. I think that was one of the main points. And Paul, did we already talk about oxygen monotherapy? That's a good idea, right? Um, that's if I think there was one point that we were to take away is that is maybe the worst idea um, <laughs> when you're treating obese hypoventilation. Uh, it's because it is a hypoventilatory problem and not an oxygenation problem necessarily. So oxygen is not appropriate monotherapy. It may be added to whatever um, either CPAP or BiPAP plus or minus, but it's not appropriate monotherapy and can in fact harm the patient if used in that way. So not not recommended. Low recommend. And what she said about this, which I thought was really cool, is when when someone's diagnosed with this, initially, they may be on oxygen for a little while, especially the patients that are diagnosed like on, with an acute respiratory failure and a hospitalization where they're really sick. Sometimes those patients will get discharged and they might be on CPAP or BiPAP with oxygen, but that needs to be continuously reevaluated as the person gets reconditioned as they're on therapy for a while. So, you know, every couple months, like three to six months or so, she said that she would reevaluate whether they still need the oxygen because people, oxygen is a medication, okay? It's not a totally benign therapy. We've talked about this on a Things We Do For No Reason episode. Don't just crank the oxygen up and be like 100%, okay, things are good. <laughs> In this condition, you really don't want to do that. Paul, we're on the home stretch here. But it's a huge topic, a huge episode. This is, of course, number 274, MSK Triple Distilled with the great Dr. Molly Hoyblein and uh, some graphics that I drew on my iPad, Paul. (laughs) Which I love. They're adorable and (laughs) and also uh, really effective and great. Yeah. So uh, we we talked about a bunch of things, Paul. Do you want to go from the top down or do you want to start with the knee? I'll, I'll leave it to you. Um, let's, let's start, let's start with the shoulders and work our way down. I feel like that makes the most sense. All right. So some pearls about the shoulder. We talked with Dr. Carlin center about the shoulder. And, uh, I think this was episode 124 if I don't, uh, but anyway, we'll put it in the show notes for you. Anyway, she grouped shoulder pain into two main buckets based on what she's finding on physical exam. Now, of course, if like someone's arm got ripped off in like a, in a, in a fall or something, that's going to lead you down a different pathway. But if you're examining the person that has shoulder pain, if they have a decreased passive range of motion, then you should think that this could be an osteoarthritis or a frozen shoulder. And the way, one way you can tell the difference between those two is by getting an x-ray because a frozen shoulder shouldn't look like much on an x-ray, whereas osteoarthritis is going to look like an arthritis picture. And then one other thing that she said is, don't forget to palpate the acromioclavicular joint, which uh, since I re-listened to this one, Paul, all my shoulder pain patients, I'm making sure that I do that because she said a lot of the times she'll like get the x-ray and it shows AC joint arthritis. And then she's like, oh man, did I forget to palpate that? Or Because then you know she can't be sure if that's the cause of their pain or not. Yep. Yep. 
And so that's one bucket. So if they have a decreased passive range of motion, uh, which you can do by just, just trying to externally rotate, just have the patient hold their elbows at their sides and uh, with their fists or hands out in front of them and just externally rotate uh, their arm with their arm and elbow against their side. And uh, if they have a decreased range of motion, then you can think it's in that bucket. If they have normal range of motion and it's intact, then it's probably going to be a rotator cuff because, Paul, most things with a shoulder, it's it's the rotator cuff, right? Right. Well, yeah, especially if you're of a certain age. And I think of that certain age is actually over the age of 40, if I'm not mistaken. So I think yeah. once you're older than 40, you're much more likely for, for shoulder pathology to be a rotator cuff than not. So I feel like that's just based on prevalence, a, a fairly safe diagnosis to make in a lot of patients who present with shoulder pain. Right. And especially if they're older patients, you can think about like, could this be a full thickness tear? And when she said, if you're in the rotator cuff bucket, you really want to just seek and destroy full thickness tears because those are the ones that need to see a surgeon. And the longer you wait, the harder it is to repair them. Right. And the way that you look for full thickness tears is you look for weakness. And the tests that we talked about are actually... There's an internal and external rotation lag test, and then there's also uh, the empty can test. And I think everyone's familiar with the empty can test, but I didn't know it as a way to look for weakness. I, I, I didn't really know that aspect of it. I was just like, oh, is, is there a pain on the empty can? Okay, it's a rotator cuff thing. But basically, if someone has weakness on the lag tests or weakness on the empty can test, then you have to be concerned that there could be a full thickness tear. And those are people that would warrant some imaging and would probably need to see a surgeon sooner, sooner than later. Yeah. But everybody yeah, else, right. And Paul, like, you know, you, you asked her, does it bursitis matter? Does impingement matter? And I think the answer was not really because you're going to treat it all pretty much the same way. I, I would for sure. Yeah. <laughs> she also said, if you have a really good physical therapist, they'll probably figure it out for you. But yeah, well, also true. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, for, so for, Anything that's not a full thickness tear, physical therapy, you can do ice or heat, you can do topical NSAIDs, and most of those are going to get better without a surgery. Oh, and one other great pearl, Paul, she said, she asked about nighttime symptoms. And the reason for that is because if a person is complaining of pain, like I can't lay on my shoulder, it's, it's too painful, it's keeping me up at night. She says, those are people she's more likely to do an injection on because she can do it in the office the same day and get them feeling better so that they can get into therapy and start to rehab. But that's why she asked about it. It doesn't really give you a clue to the diagnosis. It just tells you how well the person's doing, which I thought was a really patient-centric more immediately helpful. way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's go to knees next. I know we said we were going to work down, but I, I just talked too much. So let's, let's hear your pearls about the oh. knee. I mean, I could talk about the hips too. Okay. Um, you want to talk? All right. Well, tell me, what was your favorite thing from the hip one then? Just for, for those of you playing along at home, this is a game time change. This is very exciting. Um, <laughs> Paul, can you roll with this? <laughs> I can. We'll see how it goes. Uh, I got nothing to read off of. No, I, I, doctor, and I think this is based largely on Dr. Park's approach uh, to hip pain, which is incredibly straightforward, which is exactly what I need. And really, he talks about sort of the three big things that actually cause hip pain. So his approach is it, it's either going to be trochanteric bursitis, it's going to be DJD of the hip, or it's probably uh, radiation from lumbar radiculopathy, or then, then then there's a lot of zebras and sort of rarer stuff in there, like your right. avascular necrosis and that kind of stuff. So if you think it's trochanteric bursitis, you know, early trainees if will often mistake when a patient says hip pain and they point to the outside of their hip, trainees will think that that is arthritis. It is not because there's nothing articulating out there. So that's, <laughs> that is 
usually trochanteric bursitis assessed by just having the patient sitting up at 90 degrees. You post, push in the greater trochanter, the patient says, ouch, you've since the diagnosis, you're a genius. Um, if you are concerned for DJD of the hip, then you do the windshield wiper test where you sort of stabilize the leg and do internal and external rotation using the, the distal part of the leg as sort of a joystick and rotating in and out. If that reproduces the pain, probably is DJD. Um, though there's some other things that can do it, but you know, common things being common, that's probably DJD of the hip. And happily, those patients do really well with hip replacements. Like that's something that is, is fixable and patients do okay with it. And then the other stuff is, you know, if someone has low back pain that's radiating down to their hip, you can do the usual sort of back pain assessment, whether you're doing straight leg raise or assessing some of the other um, signs and symptoms and, and just getting a good history for low back pain. That one kind of declares itself almost by exclusion if you've done your other uh, physical examination maneuvers correctly. So I thought his approach is really straightforward and understandable, and it only requires knowledge of a couple of maneuvers to get a pretty good idea of what the diagnosis is rather than sort of referring them right off to orthopedic surgery. Yeah, I wasn't aware at how good the outcomes were with hip surgeries. And he, the, the main thing he said there was patients over 60, they're, they're good candidates for hip surgery because it's, it, it's good technology. It works well. Patients are generally very happy with it. Patients under 50, they really hesitate to put a hip in because they don't want to have to do a repeat surgery. And yeah. he, he also did make the comment that the longer you can wait to get the hip replacement, he said the technology is just constantly getting better. But it's surprisingly hard to engineer what the body has done uh, naturally, which which I thought was also cool. I, I love when he when he talks about like the the surgical stuff. Yeah, yeah. So this this he made it just so so simple, everybody. So like ninety percent of the time, it's the greater trochanteric pain syndrome, OA of their hip, or it's actually not the hip at all. It's coming from their low back. So uh, we have a figure for that one that that you can check out and. Now we'll move down to the knee. One of which I can tell you, uh, you got to rule out hip pain in the person, uh, referred hip pain in oh, the person with the done. knee. So Paul, uh, with the knee, I should just get, uh, I should just order whatever four X-ray bundle that the that the comes with my radiology department, right? Like just uh, open open electronic health record that I hate and uh, order order the four X-ray. Whatever has the most views is the one that you want to order always. That, that is a great rule of thumb for any kind of muscle cell imaging, correct? Yeah. Or you could do a, a, a more evidence-based approach or something that might actually be useful to you. Yeah, so, so tell what, me- What Dr. Parks recommend? No, you tell, you tell me, Paul. This is, I, I know this is your bread and butter. You're the, you're, Paul is, a, is an amateur radiologist, which I, I just love. And I, <laughs> I, we'll tease it now, yeah. Paul. We'll just, we'll just tease it now. We, we are trying to put together an episode of like some radiology for the internists. We'll, we'll see how that's going to work. But that's, that's something that hopefully is on the horizon. It's going to happen one of these days, one way or another. Yeah. I, I think we could all use the help. But the, the recommended views that, that Dr. Parks talks about getting are the, the AP and lateral view, which I think we all do, but he mentions you specify standing if possible. So the weight-bearing films are probably the most useful ones because otherwise you can have some uh, artifact, like the space opens up with the patient sitting or not bearing weight, and it looks like cartilage. And in fact, it's just space from the joint not being fully compressed by the weight. So to get the best idea of how the cartilage is affected by a patient, like just walking and using their knee, you want them actually bearing weight on it. And I think a 30 degree flexion view gives you the best shot for um, posterior arthritis, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. He said it's a, I can't remember if it's an AP or a PA, but it's a, the person is like, it's, it's a straight on shot and the person has their knees slightly bent. And that way you can see that posterior articulation of the joint surface which you don't see as well when the person's just standing with, I guess, their knees locked straight, uh, you know, straight out. Um, and then the third view is the the so-called merchant view or the sunrise view, where you're actually kind of 
looking down the barrel of the knee and actually seeing the patella sort of sitting right there in the center of the film. I, you'll, you'll know it if you see it. I can't I don't think I can describe it any better than that. But that is the right shot if you're looking for, I think, patellofemoral complaints specifically is, right. is where that becomes useful or maltracking. Yeah. Yeah. So it should be right between the condyles. You should see nice, even cartilage on both sides. It should It should be central. And if it's not, or if you see jagged osteophytes coming off of it, then you may have made made your diagnosis there. And yeah, I mean, other other great pearls in that episode, I, I like how he just talked about how he's like, your ACL, the ligament, ligaments are like the size of a pinky finger for a given patient. And those things don't yep. just tear with minimal force. I mean, you need you need like the right kind of mechanism to have those. And oftentimes you can, when you do the maneuvers, which we can link to our video for that, you can see some laxity in the ligaments if they're fully torn, especially the ACL. He also gave us some really great tips on identifying meniscal injuries. And I, I think that's really best done by the video because Paul, I think everybody does the McMurray's test wrong. And he said that he had done it wrong for years. And so the video tells you about that, where you really have to uh, rotate the person's hip to the maximum point and then make a C with their heel. It's, it's great. I'm still not convinced I'm doing it right, but yeah, he demonstrates <laughs> it beautifully. Like, I try, I'm trying, I, I, I got to practice a little bit. I'm afraid I'm going to like break someone's knee when I'm doing it, but <laughs> it feels sure. a little violent, but I, 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 I got to get it down. You might be doing it wrong then if you're, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it involves a hammer, right? <laughs> um, and Paul, I, I feel like it's a little bit of the elephant in the room. Anytime we talk to a joint doctor or a surgeon about this, that these injections. So we did talk to him about injections because the, the evidence just doesn't stack up the way that you would want it to. You know, maybe it, it has some short-term pain relief, but in the long term, it, most people just regress back to where wherever they were at a year or right. the, the, the treatment group and the non-treatment group are the same point at a year out. So what he said with this, both for the knee and the hip is he, he's trying to buy time. It's usually a last line effort but sometimes patients do respond. So he will try, especially if the patient's in a lot of pain up front and you're really trying to get them some short-term pain relief. I still try other things first, Paul. I'm not, I'm not sure what your practice is. Uh, more and more, that's the case. I think, you know, I, there's a subset of patients who have had success uh, for them with, with injections who not demand them, but I, I feel, feel comfortable getting them and ask for them. And yeah. so those patients that I will cheerfully set up for them. You know, I think we even talked about this in the episode. Like there have been some studies that have shown just saline injection even provides some. Right some pain relief for patients. So I'm, I'm, I've lost enthusiasm for them and do try things like uh, physical therapy, preferentially, if I can talk patients into it. Um, and then the medication options, I think we talk a little bit, a little bit about too. What, what I should say is that if someone does have a large effusion that is distending the joint capsule, you know, certainly it makes sense to put a needle in there and it, like just, just draining the effusion can provide relief. So uh, what, what I'm talking more about is the the actual steroid injection. I, I'm right. not as, you know, not nearly as bullish on it as I used to think, because I, I think it's just out there in the world that like, everyone's just like, yeah, give me some like steroid or some PRP or uh, stem cells in my knee. And I'm going to feel, I'm going to be a million <laughs> bucks. And we were kind of lamenting on the episode. None of this yet has worked the way that, that we hoped it would. Nothing has yet uh, proven to regrow cartilage on, on the knee. So largely with MSK, I mean, physical therapy does have a role. Ice and heat do have a role. Topical NSAIDs, people. Get, uh, Diclofenac <laughs> is generic now. Get, get, it, get out there. So, Paul, 
I don't have any more uh, that I wanted to. I mean, I could talk about MSK for a long time because I've been uh, really thinking about it a lot lately with some other lectures I've been doing. But uh, I think we have to end this episode. What, unless you have any last words? No, no. I mean, we've had we've had diarrhea, we've had dementia, we've had MSK, we've had OHS. I mean, I don't know what else these people want from us. I think they're done here. <laughs> All right. If they want more, they can go back and listen to the full episodes. Let's get to the outro. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> there it is. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. And we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to give a special thanks to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter are on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, and we should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio, and as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you. And goodbye.